0: This is Paul Axton, and I wanted to point you to the Patreon notice on our podcast now, that if you click on the Patreon page, you'll see our various levels that you can join and help support, in addition to our donation button that takes you to Outreach International. So we appreciate your patronage and listening, and if you enjoy these podcasts, we do appreciate any support you might give as that we are a donation-based ministry dependent upon supporters like yourself. Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In uh, Scripture, there are two sets of verses describing the extent of salvation. There's the narrow way, the division between the sheep and the goats, the judgment scenes in which some are excluded or cast out. But then there are an abundance of passages describing the salvation of all people, all nations, every person. And so there is a tension in these passages that might be summed up as all are saved, but some are not. And there is a tension which undoubtedly we cannot resolve, and I'm not going to resolve it today. But is it a contradiction? Is it that there is a possibility that the future fires are not simply a punishment, but as in the early church, that are a kind of purging? I want to look at the tension. I kind of want to dwell in the tension and how it reflects on God and our understanding of salvation. That is, whatever solution we might find to this problem, I think the key element of it is our conception of God. You know, what is worthy, what is most worthy of God? And also the point of salvation, um, I think, is, is salvation from sin and death primarily is salvation from eternal, torturous existence. Uh, Sin and death are depicted as being defeated in the Bible, and this, I believe, rather than God's wrath or hell, is the focus of our understanding. But there have been Christians who believe that in the end all persons will be saved from the very earliest church. They believed in hell, talking about the 329, 379, I'm thinking here of Basil of Caesarea, who says that in his day that those who believed that hell was not eternal and that all would attain salvation were the large majority, at least in the Eastern Church. Uh, the historical evidence suggests that the universalist faction was maybe most numerous as a ratio of believers in the first half of the first millennium. And again, they believed in hell, but not in its eternity. And to them, hell was purification, like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, that Paul there describes the wood, hay, and stubble as being consumed. But this represents not the entire person, but it represents a cleansing, a purification. And so... A few passages describe the impetus behind evangelism as the hope that everyone is saved. 1 Timothy 4.10, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. And I think this is key here. The focus is on who God is, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. There's certainly a picture that God desires the salvation of all, also in First Timothy. This is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The idea here, he desires this, will his will be accomplished? There are passages that describe the sweep of history as the move from all are disobedient and held in captivity and then all will in some way be relieved of that. Romans 11:32 For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Paul is able to account for all people and actually in Romans, you know, whether Paul himself he certainly seems to believe in the universality of the salvation of Israel. Actually, this was part of my discussion yesterday with Douglas Campbell. And it seems that in that passage, that section of Romans 9 to 11, then he's describing that, well, we account for the Gentiles. They've all fallen short. We account for the Jews. And that verse then sums it up, that God will have mercy on all. He says a similar thing in Romans 5. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Last week, we critiqued the notion that sin is simply willful rebellion and rejection of God. In the Bible, the failure of humanity is that people are deluded held captive to a lie, enslaved to sin, and the entire movement of salvation is release from slavery, release from captivity, a defeat of death. I do not think that there is any passage where the cross of Christ is depicted as saving from eternal torturous existence, or even the category of Gehenna, And there's certainly no picture of Dante's Inferno, you know, a realm ruled over by the devil, a kind of, you know, there's heaven here and God's in charge and there's hell there and Satan's in charge. And, of course, the question is, if God is eternally angry, doesn't this in some way give us a false depiction of the love of God? Clearly, the biblical teaching again and again is that his anger does not endure forever. So if eternal torture of finite humans is part of his plan and necessary to his ends, this is Calvinism that God must punish people forever to demonstrate that he's in charge, that he's sovereign. One might question, is this worthy of the love of God? And the problem is, you know, if you pull out what is called infernalism, the idea that people are saved from eternal, torturous existence, that at least in the Western tradition, atonement theory, our understanding of salvation, our understanding of human beings, our understanding of God, that they seem to revolve around this, and they may unravel. And so many people hold to Calvin's penal substitution that God died in Christ to save us from God's Wrath in the Father. I think that's not a true depiction of the atonement of the New Testament. Many people believe in innate immortality, that is, that people are little pieces of God and that they are indestructible. That is simply not a teaching of the Bible. That's a kind of popular idea that has been taken up from Greek thought. And many picture God as mainly angry. In fact, Calvin said anger, not love, is the main thing about God. In fact, Calvin says that love is an anthropomorphism. That is, that it is a way of describing God that is not true to his character. God hates sinners, Calvin said, and this is the main thing about God, is that his hate and wrath. I think that's just a distorted picture of God, and yet that is the picture of God that in what we call evangelicalism would be the primary understanding, or at least a predominant. Eastern Orthodox theologian David Bentley Hart, he's just recently come out with a book, and he's noted the sheer enormity of the idea of a hell of torment and the absurdities and atrocities that it entails, I'm quoting him, and it raises the question, are we still dealing with the same God as that of the New Testament? Given the moral hideousness, he says, of infernalism, given that, like God, you know, we'll be required in eternity, he quotes Tertullian here, we'll be required to relish the delightful spectacle of the destruction of the reprobate forever and ever. Or that, like Martin Luther put it, the saved will rejoice to see their loved ones, I assume it would be their former loved ones, roasting in hell. And that according to Thomas Aquinas, the vision of the torments of the damned will create the beatitude of the redeemed. That is, that the one depends upon the other And they cannot have any trace of pity for their damned loved ones because that would, in some way, dampen the joys of heaven. So given all of this, the question that Hart raises is, do we still have to do with the religion of the New Testament? Does this eternal hell distort the character of God? Does it change the nature of salvation? Does it put human will at the center of eternity? Does it create a kind of feeling of elitism that some people are in and some people are damned forever and so it kind of diminishes the value of the vast majority of humanity? Does it shift the focus of the New Testament away from salvation from sin and death, which seems to be the primary focus of the New Testament, to salvation from eternal torturous existence. And so what I am suggesting is that if we are going to focus on an eternal future category, it should not be eternal damnation, whatever that might be, as it fails to capture the focus of the Bible. And what I'm going to do, I'm just going to look at some passages, a series of passages that give us a focus on the comprehensive nature of salvation again and again you know Genesis 12 3 all peoples will be blessed through Abraham Psalms 22 all the ends of the earth and the families and nations of the earth will acknowledge God Psalm 65 2 all men will come to God Psalms 86 9 all nations will glorify and worship God Psalms 103 8 to 9 God is compassionate and will not always accuse and will not be angry forever. Psalms 145. The Lord has compassion on all his creation he has made and all will praise him. I've got maybe 25 verses here. I won't. uh, (laughs) We don't have to read them all. I think you get the point. That it's just thematic in the Old Testament that God's anger is not permanent, that although he punishes man, this is exactly what Isaiah says, he says he will heal, he will guide, he will restore, he will comfort. And certainly the will of God, again and again, this is in the New Testament, is that all will be saved. And it is not his will, as Peter says, that any would be lost. The Lord is not slow, Second Peter 3.9, To fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, some verses seem to qualify the wish of God, that, yes, he wishes all to be saved. The possibility is there, you know, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. But as 1 John says, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him. And so there are those verses that qualify it. Many verses depict salvation as an act of God breaking into the circumstance of man. A kind of apocalyptic imagery. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. The making here, I think, is to be found, that he created the first Adam, he created the second Adam, and he's remaking humanity. In Ephesians 1.10, that in the dispensation, this is the King James Version, of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. As Luke 3 6 puts it, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And so some verses account for the action of God and the will of man. The will of man has to acquiesce. John 12 32 And when I am lifted up to the earth, I will draw all people to myself. The question here is is it draw? Is it drag? But the point is that man's will is made to acquiesce. Other verses point at the necessity of human response. Whoever believes in him should not perish. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that they might be saved through him. The other verses account for human will, but it says that all will acknowledge Christ. Romans 14, 11, For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. Philippians, very similar verse. And they're both referring to the Old Testament. They're quoting here. God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is, the picture is that God's glory is all in all. And of course, this is thematic, that Christ will be found to be all in all. And the implication of these sorts of verses is that there will be no one left who does not acknowledge the lordship of Christ. And of course, is the question, can one acknowledge the lordship of Christ and be damned? It seems that from the passages that there's basically two kinds of people. There's first Adam people, as in Adam, all die. And there's second Adam people that all will be made alive. Some verses indicate that there is a postmortem, that is after death. And maybe this is questionable. But look at 1 Peter 4, 6. For this, that is that after death, a person can repent. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And the implication is that no one will rebel forever, that all will acknowledge Christ. If they acknowledge him, the implication would seem to be that in some way they're redeemed. So if we see death as the primary problem, Revelation certainly depicts a definitive destruction of death. Then death and Hades, Hades is just the place of the dead, were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. So what do we make of all this? And I'm going to try to draw some conclusions, saying, okay, all of these verses, but what can we say, taking into account all of them? Some things, obviously, we cannot explain, nor can we assume to comprehend. You know, just a simple idea that God's justice will be all in all. I believe that. I believe that God's justice will be all in all. I cannot tell you how that will be accomplished. Number one, in the Bible, the failure of humanity is that people are deluded. They are held captive to a law. They are enslaved to sin. Now, I don't agree with Augustine or Calvin that people are born this way, but through enculturation, through imitation of their family, people are fallen. And this means that understanding and knowledge and will are bent to the circumstance, contingent upon their capacities. Okay, that's the problem. People are deluded, they're under a lie. And it's not that there's something inherently wrong or mysteriously wrong. You know, this is Augustine that says that sin is a mystery. But rather, our will is dependent upon our understanding... And our understanding is deluded. It's subject to a kind of slavery. And we will according to the purpose of our understanding. And so what is salvation? Salvation is the exposure of the lie, right? An exposure of the delusion. The displacement of the lie with the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth will set you free, Jesus says. And so seeing the good in God is apparently a reshaping. You know, you see the good, you're drawn to the good, and your will is reshaped. So that rightly understanding and rightly willing are synonymous. No one will be deluded forever as all will see and know God. And seeing the good, the true, the beautiful in God draws us to God inevitably when I am lifted up you know how do you read that I will draw all men to myself that is that God's will is being enacted in creation in history in all of our lives and you just read the verse every knee will bow every tongue shall confess that Christ is Lord many scriptures depict this and as including all people the cosmos all of creation and so, will God's will be defeated? Will his purpose be thwarted? I, mean, I think the answer to that is no. Obviously not, but what does that mean? I think to imagine an eternal category of torture, first of all, where people are eternally destroyed, that would seem to mean that God's purposes are thwarted, maybe forever. And this would diminish the person and work of God. So we really have no final or full explanation in the Bible of the problem of evil and the resolution to the problem of evil. We believe there is a resolution. We believe God will bring justice. We don't completely comprehend, but we certainly understand that God is defeating evil in the cross of Christ. He, though, is having a view of God that trusts he will bring about justice for all people. So, the conclusion here, we need to focus on bringing salvation to people, but also understand that this salvation is not simply future, but it is a present tense salvation in which people can throw off slavery, addiction, anger, self-inflicted sort of death, masochism. And there is still the focus on salvation, but we need to understand that it's a practical deliverance from hell now, and that there is a kind of purging, and there is a sense of a real-world help from God, a real-world deliverance psychologically, that we will, in fact, realize full spiritual and mental health in Christ. And so it is much a present-tense hell that we suffer from, and an orientation to death that we suffer from, now, from which we're rescued. And let me say this, this is the key thing here. There is a certain relief and joy that comes with the expectation that God is going to be completely in control. I think that's the picture of predestination, that God is in control. It's not an overriding of human will. But it is an acknowledgement that God will be victorious. Does getting rid of the feeling of particularity that I, you know, I haven't and others don't harbor the danger of a cheap grace? Maybe. This was Shakespeare's quote is, Doesn't this mean life is full of sound and fury, signifying nothing? Salvation is certainly the exposure of the delusion, and people under a delusion are not living in reality. So that the truth puts one in their right mind. It means having the mind of Christ. And there is an engagement with reality. There is an overcoming of a present tense sense of death, that we can be oriented our entire lives to death. And the more we're in our right mind, the more we are conscious of God as goodness, the more we see that he fills all things, that we just see the beauty of the earth, the world, the people, The more that we recognize that human nature has its true completion, its true joy only in him, I think to that degree we throw off the fetters of a distorted perception. We're freed from deranged passions. Seeing the good in God is a reshaping, I believe, of our will. So that rightly understanding, rightly willing, are synonymous with total freedom. We're liberated from crippling ignorance, emancipated from the impoverished condition of sin. Now, is that in some way that compelling necessity? Does that take away from human free will? Think of Christ himself. Did Christ have free will? Well, of course he did, right? Could Christ freely choose to deny God? He could not. He could not deny himself. The integrity of Christ's humanity entails that he possesses a full, intact human will and that this is in no way diminished or impaired because it's being operated on by God or because of the divine hypostasis, whose will is simply God's willing. Christ had true freedom. And in no way necessarily entails the possibility of rejecting God, right? That he could not do that. And so true freedom, true exercise of the will does not entail that. If it did, are we going to say, oh, well, Christ wasn't truly human? No, he was fully human. And so this lack of choice is no constraint upon the freedom of the will. It's simply the consequence of possessing a nature produced by and for God, for, by and for the transcendent good. A nature whose proper end is fashioned to be in harmony with supernatural purposes. As Augustine said, we can agree with some things, Augustine said, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless till they rest in him. So of this we can be sure. God's will is being enacted in creation, in history, in all of our lives, culminating in universal worship. Every knee shall bow, Philippians 2.10. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The power of this image should shape our understanding of God. It should shape our understanding of salvation and be the motive force behind our evangelizing. And it should shape our hope of eternity. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative, biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.